morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us, uh, not too early in the morning, but thank you for uh, managing to drag ourselves out of bed after last night's parties to talk about how can workforce retention in public services be improved. Uh, my name is Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, and we're delighted to be partnering for this event with the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Public service effectiveness depends really crucially on keeping and motivating and keeping skilled a workforce. But there are growing problems of workforce retention across many public services, including the NHS and schools, which is not only a problem in itself, but it's also making it harder to tackle with some of the legacy of the pandemic that we are still trying to grapple with. Leavers are citing a variety of problems, including high workloads, poor pay and poor leadership. Um, and so today we're Really delighted to be able to be here to discuss these issues and think about how could we do better in improving retention in public service workforces. And to help us do that, uh, I'm really pleased that we have four excellent panellists here. So on my immediate left, we have Dame Meg Hillier, MP, who is Chair of the Public Accounts Select Committee and has been MP for Hackney South and Shoreditch since 2005. On my far left, we have Kate Shoesmith, who's Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. On my right, uh, we have Kate Bell, who is Assistant General Secretary at the TUC. On my far right, uh, we have my colleague Nick Davis, who's our Programme Director of our Public Services Work Programme at the Institute for Government. Um, and we've recently, uh, just today, put out a report on exactly this question of workforce retention. So Nick will be able to reflect on some of that, and you can find the report on our website if you'd like to see more about that later on. Um, we'll be live tweeting today's event using the at IFG events uh, Twitter account, uh, the hashtag, hashtag IFGLab23 and hashtag Lab23. So please do follow and tweet along uh, if that's your thing. Um, we'll start with some remarks from the panellists and I'll probably pose some of my own questions and then we'll have plenty of time for questions from all of you as well. So please do start thinking of those. Um, but Meg, let me come to you first. Okay, well, thank you very much. And I think we know what, what some of the problems are. You mentioned, you've touched on that, but the external buffers that have hit or, or everybody, but particularly the public sector, Brexit and COVID. Um, and then if you think about the last few years in particular, the last 13 years and more generally, the sort of political spitballs of distraction that are going off all over the place, you know, mad policies being announced without real thought. And in the middle of all of that is the poor, hardworking public sector worker who's trying to keep going. So no wonder morale is dropping. Add to that pay and the cost of living and just the general pressures of the fact that recruitment is, and retention is a problem, leaving the rest carrying a high workload. So we, we, we know what the issue is. And add to that, I'd say some of these announcements you, you might have picked up, if any of you were following the Tory party conference, suddenly Jeremy Hunt's announced a, a, a recruitment freeze in Whitehall. These have happened periodically with this government, which is utter nonsense. It's not about the number of people that you're recruiting and have as a headcount. That's a, you need to look at what you want to do and then work out how many people you need to do it. And it's, it's a very cheap way for any government to make a, a headline. It actually achieves very little. And that actually means we, we critical on my committee uh, the last time this was announced, which I think was about a year ago. I think it seems to be kind of coming an annual thing that we have a headcount freeze now, which is just shows how ridiculous it is. And suddenly we were saying, well, where are all your apprentices coming through on things like digital skills? And of course, they had to stop recruitment. And, and one of the freezes, you know, that was freezing a talent pool coming through in an area where we really need skills. And skills is something we've looked at quite a lot. And if you look at it across the public sector, from Whitehall through to uh, the front line of the NHS um, and other uh, key public services, we don't really skill up our workforce well enough. So at Whitehall level, it's, I've been on the committee now for 12 years, and we were talking about having specialist skills amongst the civil service then, rather than just specialist generalists who jumped from subject to subject. And there's now a policy profession in Whitehall, there's a finance profession in Whitehall, there's a digital profession in Whitehall. These are good things to help begin to skill up our civil servants. But we also need to be skilling up our very junior civil servants and in our health service and other public sector uh, workforces, making sure that the lowest paid are given the skills and opportunities they need to both contribute more effectively to our public services, but also for their own benefit, enhance their skills, their wage packets, uh, their family challenges um, and so on. Um, and I think we've also got some perverse, another perverse uh, issue that this government's introduced is this five-year term for permanent secretaries. I'm not so worried about the people at the top end as I am worried at the people at the lower end of the scale. 
But if you take in Whitehall, so the top end, permanent secretary is on a five-year term. That's what the government tells you. What they don't tell you is actually they're not on a five-year term. It's contractually that they're employed. There's a five-year review point, at which point if the permanent secretary in the department decides they should go or, you know, they go, but they get very big payoff. So it's payoffs for the wealthy civil servants at the end of five years um, if they go. Whereas at the lower end, you've got hard-pressed civil servants. And look at the Home Office, for example, where the government's made great play of recruiting more people to be caseworkers to deal with asylum claims, um, but was also announcing perversely a freeze on the other side. And a lot of these poor caseworkers are being recruited, are being trained in a matter of weeks to make very life and death decisions about people's lives. And we've been predicting, I was a Home Office Minister a long time ago, um, we know what the problem is. Um, you need to have properly trained, qualified people. And very often it was very lowly paid people. I remember in the Home Office when I was a minister, uh, my diary secretary left and um, they had they found someone who wanted to do it. She worked in Croydon, which for those of you not in London is in Zone 5 in London. The Home Office main building is in Zone 1. On her salary, working to a minister as a diary secretary, she couldn't afford to travel from Zone 5 to Zone 1. So we pioneered remote working um, before it was fashionable. Uh, and we met up once a week, um, whichever end well, I was there or she was with me. And, and that was fine because we were, she was incredibly professional and able. But well, I was embarrassed that I was in a minister in a department where people were so low paid they couldn't manage to actually <laughs> afford to travel. And so I think we need to really look at that lower end. So I think there are some interesting opportunities for labour. And I'm not on the front bench, so I'm, I'm, I'm not making any unfunded spending pledges, I should stress. These are my... <laughs> <laughs> but actually, a well in, if you invest in your workforce and you do it properly, you actually improve public services and you get a lot of bang for your buck. So I think if it's done well and we're working with colleagues like the TUC and employers um, in, in our public services, I think we can get a lot out of it. So one of the things is that definitely is going to be the case under a Labour far more respect for our public servants. Um, and I think that's that basic, it, it, it's basic, but it's important to say. Clarity of roles and skills so that we are knowing what skills we need for a modern world and making sure that we're investing in our workforce so that they're trained and to doing that and that there is time for our public services and space for them to train people. Whereas if you're firefighting and you've got too few people in uh, whatever area you're working, you've got very little time to do that. And I, I've talked to people in the health service are weeping about how they can't hold the hand of someone who's learning the job because they're too busy rushing off to deal uh, with another patient. AI is an interesting area for us and I think we need to be looking at this. What can we strip out that's the sort of boring routine elements of the work that AI might be able to contribute to? There are risks in that, there are risks of how algorithms work, about how AI could be prejudicial to certain groups of people if, it's, if we're not careful about how we use it. You need a human being in there but if you think of all sorts of aspects of, of what happens uh, in our public services, routine things that happen. Could AI play a role there? Which would mean that we free up money and time to invest in higher skilled, uh, better paid public servants across the board. Um, digital transformation, which is something my committee has looked at a great deal, really important to improve our public services. It needs to be looked at the service reform end before the digital end. Government big digital projects don't tend to work because they tend to work from the other end. And that's really interesting. Also, actually, it's interesting what it does in terms of money because digital transformation now is about day-to-day -day spending rather than big capital spending because of the way it's all in the cloud. So there's an awful lot of opportunity there for Rachel Reeves and her team if they think creatively about that. Um, and I think with, you know, Rachel said yesterday about bringing consult reducing consultancy. What we've done on my committee is look at this and talk all the time about bringing those consultancy skills in-house. Sometimes you do need some specialist outsiders to come in but to bring in very specialist skills that the civil service will never maintain on a rolling basis. Um, uh, but actually, you, you do need to embed those skills in, um, in, uh, in inside the system. If you look at, for example, uh, one area I recently looked at a lot is uh, hospitals and school buildings, uh, and the, not just the reinforced concrete, but that's one part of it. When we visit, you'll visit a hospital, you'll have an estates manager who can do all of that specialist stuff. You don't have to have outside consultants. You visit a school, and because of the way the school system is being fragmented by this government with different you know, free schools, academies, uh, local authority schools and all the rest, you don't have that same base of support. So often having to buy in very expensive support. So there's lots of layers to that issue around consultancy. Rachel was particularly focusing on Whitehall, but I think there are an awful lot of opportunity there, but we can't just get rid of consultants without making sure those skills are embedded in our civil service. Um, and then on some service reform, obviously Wes Streeting is talking about reforming the NHS. I don't think we want to see big structural changes that are those spitballs of distraction. They've got to be focused on what will actually deliver. And some of the things I've mentioned will help with that. But crucially, and I'm really passionate about this as a, a constituency MP in a constituency where one in two children live in poverty, uh, where we have a huge housing crisis. 
we are not paying our staff well enough. So I want to see insourcing, but I'm very aware the work I do on the committee, you can't insource like that, click your fingers and bring people in-house because our public services haven't got the skills often to manage these services that have been outsourced for so long. And they're funded, if you look at hospitals, for example, on the basis that you do save whatever you save by outsourcing because you're paying a lower rate for people to be paid lower. We know what the, the price of that is, it's low pay, but actually, unless we've got the money going into the base budget of a, a hospital or a school to get them off that hook, we can't do that. And it's not going to be the land of milk and honey if Labour gets in next year. We're not going to suddenly have that money to switch on. So I'd want to see it happen, but I'm realistic that it's not going to happen overnight. But why it's important, just to give you one vignette from my constituency. So I'm on my doorsteps every week, pretty much, and I visited a, a man, and he was living in private rented accommodation. He'd rented two rooms off a landlady. During COVID, she'd had to raise the rent from £400 a room to 550. He brought home £1,400 as a hospital porter. Um, and he doesn't have much prospect of promotion as a hospital porter. Outsourced, of course. He and he had rented two rooms because he was living with his 17-year-old daughter. When she put the rent up, he could only afford one room. So he and his 17-year-old daughter were sharing a room in a private rented house. He was a porter in the pandemic, in the local hospital, breaking his back, really committed. And that's why we need to see um, reform and improvement uh, in order to retain people. He was still dedicatedly working, um, uh, but really, would you blame him if he went off and tried to find a better paid job in order to live better? So we need to really make sure we're supporting our public sector workers to keep the very best. Thank you very much, Meg. Kate, what's your perspective on this? I'd like to pick up where um, Meg left off, actually, because I think it's so important. So, so we're all um, service users and we're all taxpayers, so we all have this vested interest in ensuring that our public sectors work for us. And to get that right, we need the workforce to be properly treated, to be properly paid. It's absolutely essential. Um, and, I, and I'll start with the context. So from, from my perspective at the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, we're sitting at the front line of the jobs market. And you hear an awful lot about how the labour market has changed since the course of the pandemic. It absolutely has. Um, th there's no doubting about this. So, so just to give you some, some figures from the, the job vacancy posting data that we can see, there are currently a, a number of uh, areas where we desperately need public sector workers. We have over 4,000 live job vacancy postings for police officers right now. Uh, we need 26,000 primary school teachers and nursery nurses. The same again for secondary schools across all subject disciplines across the whole of the UK. 73,000 live job vacancy postings for nurses. 81,000 live job vacancy postings for carers. I could go on and on and on. These, these vacancies, they cannot be filled by the education and training programs we have running right now. We are desperately short of people. And the labor market has changed. And one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was we saw how people were changing their perspective on the jobs market, on the work they do, and why they do it. On any given day, there are about a million people working as a temporary agency worker in the UK via recruiters. Um, a million people find a new permanent job by a recruiter every year in the UK. But those, just to take that million people, they're doing that for a number of reasons. And this is one of the things that we really need to learn in the public sector. So there's about four reasons that we can see when we talk to agency workers about why they do this. And sometimes they don't call themselves agency workers. They'll call themselves contractors or freelancers. They're very proud of their status and why they're doing it. The first is they're studying. They're thinking about um, how they earn additional money. They need to develop their skill set, so they're temping. So that, that's one particular reason. Second is they have caring responsibilities. They can't get flexible work, particularly in the public sector, any other way. And so they need to do this. Sometimes they also have a permanent job and they're topping up their wages because they have those caring responsibilities. The third reason is that they um, are looking to branch out, to try something different. They might be an entrepreneur, they have a side hustle, they are doing something, they want to be uh, developing skills in a new area for them. And the fourth, and we saw this particularly during the pandemic and since, and, and this is really interesting from our perspective because all the, um, the official statistics, they told us that older workers were moving away 
from the jobs market making different choices. They were making those choices. We heard from the official statistics last year. Recruiters could tell us that was happening in March 2021. Over 50s are making different choices and they're making those choices for a number of reasons. And we particularly saw it in the public service sectors. So we saw people walking away from full-time jobs saying, I need flexibility. I'm making different decisions about my work-life balance. I'm having to think about my family. I'm having to think about my priorities in life. And so they were choosing this type of work. And I think we've got to fundamentally understand that. And if we don't get that right, we can't hope to reform public sector uh, retention and recruitment. And we need to see those things as two sides of the same coin. In terms of what we're doing is thinking about why, why is it that when we uh, put in place procurement for staffing, we want to buy people in the same way that we buy physical equipment? It's, it's fundamentally flawed. It's just completely wrong. So when we look at things like the, uh, the caps and controls on uh, agency workers in the NHS and about how they're procured, that's been in place since 2016. There's been a lot made of the fact that there's three billion pounds spent in the last financial year in NHS agency work. Over 90% of that money goes to the agency workers. So it's their, it's their wages. So that's worth um, considering. Another five billion pounds outside of that is, um, is for staffing banks. Again, it's the choice. People are having to top up their wages. They're making these choices. So you've got, and that's, if you take those two together, that's about 12% of the overall salary and wages of the NHS. People having to work flexibly. We, we need to be thinking about this. We need to be thinking about that in all contexts and why it's happening. And I'll finish with where I started, that this is a vested interest for all of us. We're all concerned about public sector recruitment and retention. You need to be seeing them as two sides of the same coin. There's a reason that recruiters, whenever they ask you about the placement they're making, they ask about the workplace culture, they ask about the staff benefits, they ask about progression opportunities. They should be helping, just like all consultancies, with that retention piece. They need to be involved. We need to be ensuring that there's that understanding of what's happening. And then I think it does allow for insourcing and bringing together those parts, because that's really, really important about how do we ensure that the money is being spent in the right way. But I think first and foremost, we need to understand why people are making these choices, why the cost of living crisis has forced some people to take on additional work, why we need 15,000 vacancies filled by agency staff in the NHS every month. This is fundamentally important and we have to understand why people are making those choices first and foremost. Unless public sector accepts that there is flexibility required in all of our workforces, we're not going to see change. Thank you very much. Kate, what do you think are the main issues here and what would you do about them? Thanks, Gemma. Um, and it's just really compelling listening to other Kate actually showing us why we need a day one right to flexible working, which is something we've been campaigning for, because if the main reason you're doing agency work is because you can't, can't get a flexible job, something has gone very, very badly wrong. Um, I mean, in answer to your question, kind of why are we here? It's basically the impact of 13 years of underfunding of our public services, and there is no getting around that. Um, just to give you a kind of sense of some of those impacts, obviously we've seen workers standing up for their pay um, on picket lines, taking strike action this year and winning better pay deals. Um, but that hasn't restored the impact of, you know, a decade of pay freezes. And just to give you a bit of a scale of the impact of that. Earlier this year, before the pay deal, but we worked out that nurses have lost over £40,000 in real earnings since 2008. That's the cumulative impact of their real pay losses. And teachers have lost around a quarter of their pay in real terms, so once inflation has been taken into account. So those pay deals this year, one after strike action, good pay deals, best we could get through kind of negotiation, but a long way to go before public sector workers are earning even what they were back in 2010. Obviously, that pay is having a big impact on recruitment, and then you get those vacancy rates, so statistics that will probably be familiar to you, but vacancy rates of around 10% um, in the NHS massive vacancy rates in education. So last September, I think we recruited one third fewer trainees in teaching than the profession needs. And then you've got those huge staff shortages in key professions like maths, science, computing, languages. 
And of course, the impact of those still in the profession is because you can't get, you know, you haven't got enough colleagues, so your workloads are absolutely enormous. And again, to just give you a sense of kind of the impact of that, um, some work on kind of work intensification says that over 60% of NHS workers are saying, I feel exhausted after the end of every day. Now, we all feel tired after work, but exhausted is a pretty high bar and not what we should be expecting anybody to feel after the end of their working day. That's over 70% of education workers saying, I feel exhausted at the end of the day. And of course, if you're covering for those colleagues who aren't there, you're working in that stressful environment. No, no wonder that that's happening. And then also many public sector workers also working in unsafe environments. So only 7% of midwives say there's enough staff to provide a safe level of service. So less than one in 10 people saying there's actually safe levels of staffing in midwifery, obviously one of our kind of most important public service roles. And there again, midwives over 60% say they feel unwell due to work-related stress. And in some ways, you can't, you know, it's hard to understand why that number isn't 100% if you've got that level of unsafe staffing and you think about the importance of the work those people do. Then, of course, to add to that, you've had um, the stress of COVID. Um, you know, these are people, teachers, health workers on the front line, working throughout the pandemic, under unbelievable levels of stress, sometimes, you know, under abuse from patients, educators, under huge amounts of pressure, worrying throughout the pandemic also because they were on the front line about whether they were bringing um, the virus home to their families. And when you think about why some people have left the profession after that, I think that has, you know, a big impact. Right now, you've got the risk of buildings literally falling down around your ears. Um, imagine the impact of waking up in the morning and saying, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, hundreds of schools are possibly unsafe. You've got to go to work in one of those schools tomorrow and possibly this evening's going to fall in on you and the pupils you look after. Um, and then we've also, to kind of add insult to injury, we've had this basically outrageous attack on public sector workers through what's called the minimum services levels legislation. That basically says if you take strike action, the government can now say, well, actually, we want to run a minimum level of service. We don't know what that minimum level of service is. They haven't defined anything about how this legislation is going to work yet. Again, showing it's just an attack on public sector workers. But basically, we can you voted a democratic ballot for strike action. Your boss can now tell you to go to work, to walk across that picket line. And if you don't do that, you face the sack. So after kind of, you know, all we heard about rewarding public sector workers after the pandemic, we've got this basically kind of outrageous attack on their, on their ability to stand up for their terms and conditions. So what can we do about it? Well, we're very pleased that Labour has committed to repeal that legislation. And I think, you know, you might say, well, that's not going to solve the recruitment and retention crisis. But it is about giving public sector workers the respect they deserve and the ability to stand up and negotiate their terms and conditions when they need to do that. Meg's talked about insourcing and Labour's committed to the biggest wave of insourcing for a generation. I agree we need to know how to do that. Basically, we need to have those plans in place. But that is absolutely vital because in too many workplaces, we've still got two-tier workforces effectively where you've got outsourced workers on even worse terms and conditions as mega set out so eloquently. Um, fundamentally, we need a long-term strategic approach to rebuilding our public services, and that has got to have decent pay at its centre. And I guess this is kind of at the heart of this discussion. You know, we do need to invest some money. But I think what public sector workers need to see is, yes, we've got a plan to do that. And yes, that is a direction of travel. Because at the moment, they're waiting kind of every year about, you know, what will the pay review bodies determine? Where will government decide to kind of attack them this year? And I think what public sector workers for are looking for from a Labour government is a plan which says, yes, we need to pay restoration. We have a plan to do this. This is the direction of travel. This is how we're going to get here. And then just last one thing that maybe public sector workers need a little bit less of. So public sector workers are obviously absolutely committed to delivering the best service possible, to using the best technology possible, to thinking about new ways to deliver services. 
But I think too often when they hear the words reform, what they hear is basically it's your fault that your pay has fallen, that your conditions are bad, that we have high waiting lists, that we're struggling to teach people in our schools. It feels when people talk about reform that the blame is being laid at their door. And I think we have to be really, really careful about actually exposing what's happened to our public sector over the last 13 years, exposing where the blame lies, which is very firmly at the door of government, and not setting out to suggest that somehow public sector workers, by working in a different way, when they're understaffed, underpaid and under huge amounts of pressure, can be responsible for the turnaround of our public services we need. Thanks. Thank you. And finally, Nick, what does your work show on this? Thank you. Um, so yes, as Gemma mentioned at the beginning, we have published a new report today looking at retention issues across three public services, uh, the NHS, uh, schools and the police. Uh, I'm going to focus on the recommendations, but first just to highlight some of the key trends um, from that. So across all the services we looked at, leaving rates fell in the first year of the pandemic as understandably people wanted to stay in relatively uh, secure public sector roles. In 2021-2022, lever rates shot up uh, and in many cases hit record highs. Uh, they've subsequently fallen a bit uh, from there, but leaving rates are still uh, very high in most services compared to the pre-pandemic level. Um, I think probably most worrying, there's been a big uptick in lever rates among young staff. And I think that probably reflects some of the kind of lack of flexibility uh, issues and caring responsibilities that was mentioned by um, other panellists. And that's uh, particularly acute among uh, nurses, among midwives, and actually in GPs. So under 30-year-old GPs are leaving at twice the rate as those over the age of 65 who you might expect to leave most frequently uh, for retirement. And that's a big problem for the future general practice um, workforce. Also worth noting, there's a lot of variation between different work groups. So the leaving rates for nurses are much higher than it is for doctors, uh, for example. And similarly, uh, police staff leave at a much higher rate than police officers. In terms of the impact, look, some level of turnover is healthy uh, and necessary, but all the evidence uh, suggests that current levels are too high and that is damaging both for public service performance and it's also costly uh, for those services. Um, so what can you do about it? I think the first thing is, as Meg says, it, it's fairly basic, but you need to know what you want to do and the number of people you need to do that. Uh, and that requires having uh, workforce uh, strategies for all public services. And those need uh, independently audited forecasts for the number and the type of staff required uh, to meet demand in five, 10 uh, and 20 years time, considering likely changes to technology and productivity. You need the expected number of people who are going to join and leave and the plans in place to train and retain those people. We now have a, such a plan for the NHS, whether it's delivered uh, we will, or funded, or, or funded uh, we will see, but we don't have that for social care. We don't really have it for schools. Uh, we don't have it for the police, despite them just recruiting uh, 20,000 additional officers. So that's a kind of basic. We also, as, pay, as everyone else said, pay is a key part of this. Uh, and we think that much better use could be made of pay review bodies. So they are not independent. Uh, their recommendations are not the kind of optimal level of pay needed to recruit and retain because government sets their remit and critically, it sets kind of the level of affordability. However, they are a helpful uh, way of dispassionately balancing those affordability concerns with uh, recruitment and retention concerns. But what we would like to see is the government requiring pay review bodies to say, this is what we recommend, which is suboptimal, but this is the impact that we think it would have on recruitment and retention to more clearly pull out what they think the impact is. And that would then put the res responsibility back where it actually belongs with ministers, because this is ultimately a, a political um, decision. Uh, and finally, as um, perhaps we can get into in the questions, we think there's much more that could be done on workload, which is the other thing you hear from um, staff who are leaving on leadership and management, uh, on flexible working, uh, which others have mentioned, and just on the evidence base as well, because the government spends a lot of time thinking about recruitment and not nearly enough time um, thinking about retention. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Nick.
Um, Meg, can I come to you first with one question? Um, as Kate mentioned, strikes have been a huge feature of the past year. What do you think of the current government's strike strategy and what would you suggest a future Labour government did differently? Well, I mean, they've just they've stoked it up as a, as a war against the public service. And I have to say, I remember talking to a colleague after the clapping for carers and saying, you know, I feel this may ring hollow. We both agreed. And indeed, it was we were predictably right. And it's easy when you're a government with the, the problems they're facing and to, to find a, a scapegoat and a target um, has been all too easy and frankly shameful. Um, so I think but getting around the table and discussing it, but there, there is a reality about the cost of all of this. And in fact, the, the NHS workforce plan is not fully funded. Um, and then you've got not just funding the expansion, but then you've got to expand the ongoing salaries of people. So there's an awful lot of work that's got to be done about what's affordable, but actually do that in conjunction with our trade unions. These are all public servants who want to deliver a good service. They want to see, and I take Kate's point about reform, yeah, reform can't be done to people, it needs to be done with people. And actually, anyone I speak to locally and, and, and nationally, they, they see the problems in the service that they're working in, and they know what needs to be done to change it. They just want to be helped to do that. So I think having a partnership is really where it's at, you know, and people, some people in this room may be old enough to remember beer and sandwiches, I suppose it's now mineral water and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and wraps. But anyway, um, but uh, but what's wrong with that? You know, it was often criticised that we got to talk to the trade. And I think, great. I mean, that's what we should also be talking to business too. You know, Keir's absolutely quite rightly clear about that. We've all got to work together to get these results. So I think if we're in that, and then you can set a trajectory. And I think that this idea, I'm looking interested in looking at your report, but having pay review bodies look at that impact statement. We have seen impact statements as a slight side issue, but it's, I think, really relevant here. When when we were in government, we had impact statements and also on, on how policies would work in all sorts of ways, you know, inequalities and environmental and so on. They have really watered down under this government. And it means that those ministers making decisions can dodge the long-term impact. And I like to use the phrase slow politics. We need to make decisions now that will benefit us in 10, 20 years time. And too often, and particularly recently, and in the, well, actually, you know, this government has taken short-term decisions. Those years of austerity are really coming home to bite, as, as Kate very capably laid out. And we need to make sure that we are thinking on the long term, which does mean we need a three-term Labour government at least. So there's just a challenge. <laughs> so when you leave, when you leave from here, go knocking on the doors because we've got to really embed a victory. Because it's no good if we're just firefighting for four years and trying to just you know, dim the worst of what's happened. We're not going to make much headway. We need that. We need a long-term relationship with trade unions, business, our public services to make sure that we have a vision for change that's just joint. Meg, you've made the point a couple of times now that there isn't going to be a huge amount of money to deal with any of these problems. It's not a world of milk and honey, as I think you put it. I'd be interested to know from each of you, if you could pick one or two things to recommend to a next Labour government that you think wouldn't necessarily cost much money, but would actually help us make progress on these things, what would you, what would you suggest? Nick, I'll start with you and let the others think. <laughs> <laughs> um... So let me pick up on flexible working, I think. And look, I think we have to accept that some public services, particularly the NHS and the police, which run 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, there, there is less flexibility in those types of roles than there perhaps is with a kind of other graduate roles and kind of sitting at a desk, for example. That said, there is a lot more that could be done pretty cheaply. So, you know, when we speak to people working in hospitals, they will tell us things like, um, we just want to be able to book our wedding day off a year ahead, but we can't do that because of how we are rotored. And there are pretty cheap and easy things that could be done there that would make the experience for workers feel a lot better. And I think as others are kind of picked up, a lot of the problem at the moment has just been the tone but from government to workers and it has been very aggressive and oppositional and that no one has much hope uh, at the moment and these pu public services depend on a huge amount of effort beyond what people are paid for contractually like the NHS would fall over if people weren't working their three hours uh, at the moment and the younger staff are the less likely they are to do that because they're not they're not feeling as uh, appreciated so uh, frankly showing some appreciation for workers would not cost much but would make quite a big difference 
I mean, I think we should challenge the premise of the question a little bit. Like, you know, obviously we're in a tight fiscal environment, but the government can make different choices. And, you know, we have said we need a national conversation about tax. We also need to expect to recognise that not spending money on public services is costing us a lot of money. We have got record rates of sickness and inactivity right now. That is a huge drain on economic activity generally. If you talk to business about skill shortages, if you talk to them about their public productivity, our kind of public health crisis that we are now living in, impact of child poverty as well as Meg was talking about, are costing us. So we have to think about those kind of long-term costs as well. However, to answer your actual question, um, I think workforce strategies, as Nick set out, is actually a really important part of this. Having a plan, negotiating that plan with trade unions and talking to them and setting out where that is going is actually, you know, one of the key things we need to do. As Nick just said, treating public sector workers with a bit of respect. And I think, you know, repealing that anti-strikes legislation would be a pretty good start there. Yeah, I mean, I think one of, one of the things I also talk about here is cost shunting, and I'm you know, picking up on Kate's point about long term. So we talk about, I talk about cost shunting in the short term. So if you cut mental health services, the police end up picking up. So you're just shunting the cost from one bit of the public sector to another. But there's also long term cost shunting. So public health, uh, you know, not having recruitment, you are burning out work, public sector workers, so they're all leaving. These are all things that actually are what, what George Osborne has so much to answer for. Don't get me started on him. I mean, you know, the pay freeze and then and then they're not keeping up with inflation, then hits the cost of living. Who, who could have predicted it? Huh? You know, they didn't care. Um, so we need to be thinking about those long term things. And actually, so that certainty of a pipeline of skills. And so if you're working and I've got family and my, my sister's was, she was with four children was working one night in A&E to sort of. That was her flexible working mm. Friday night and then having an shattered Saturday with her four children. I mean, you know, so just to keep things ticking along. But so I know that I know what people have been having to do. Um, but if you're if you're actually saying, well, we've got a pipeline here, we've got we've got a, we want to train these people. I think that gives hope for those people who are hard pressed, knowing that coming down the line, there will be people joining them. And I think that's one of the best ways we can invest, because that will solve some of the waiting list issues in health service it will solve some of the shortages of teachers and so on. Um, but but we'll also see hope for those in place. And that's I mean, I agree with Kate absolutely about making choices, and, and believe me, I spend a lot of time thinking about about that in my in my committee and, and elsewhere. But I think that would be one quick win because we're also giving hope to the people who need to be trained up, the young people coming through to have opportunity as well. I agree with everything that's just been said, actually. So that's a, <laughs> that's a good start. Um, I, I think that it's worth saying that the workforce strategy for the NHS isn't actually workforce strategy no. it, it, it's fundamentally flawed and unless you start with the perspective of why are the individuals working in the sectors um, I, I agree with Nick in terms of saying that actually there's a number of people within public service sectors that are in these professions um, and are staying perhaps the rate of um, uh, decline and leaving the profession has changed a bit because they, uh, that, that sense of staying in a secure job. But actually, I think it's far, far more than that. So in speaking to um, the, the people that I do in terms of supply teachers and agency nurses and locums and social workers, they have a vocation. They are absolutely dedicated and committed to this profession. They want to work in the public sector and reform it and make it better. So not including them in those workforce strategies and starting with the expertise. So who's hiring? Why are we hiring? What, why do people want to work here? How do they want to work? How do you fundamentally uh, review all of that? And then, and then I think the second part of that is, and there might be a role for the Public Accounts Committee here, is that I, I said about procurement. If, if we're not looking at the, um, how these strategies are um, uh, provided for, what the cost implications are, what the different models are, and really drill down into value for money and where the return on investment is, that's what's missing. What we've got now is we've got sticking plasters. We've got people that are f fighting to, to keep their wards safe. So, so I, I, f I fully appreciate when I read stuff in the Daily Mail about why a finance director of an NHS trust has made a decision to bring in a really overpaid um, locum surgeon on bank holiday Monday because otherwise they are worried they're going to be in the press because somebody has died. They're having to make that decision within an hour. So we've got to change all of this. That has We have to start from the perspective of what's the needs, where, what are we getting value for money from, how are we procuring public sector services? And if we don't, and if we don't understand that and understand why people are working in these sectors, then we won't change it. Thank you. 
more to come to all of you now for your questions. Um, so, Emily, I'll take your question first, and then the lady further on. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's Emily Andrews. I'm from the Centre for Ageing Better, and we work um, towards fair access to work for people in their 50s and 60s, amongst other things. So flexible work is hugely important to that, right? Um, and we work with lots of employers to make flexible work a reality. Um, and I've got a question around the kind of the support that might need to be put in place, because on the one hand, we talk about flexible work as a kind of quick win, but it's actually really difficult. It takes quite, you know, that job redesign takes expertise, it takes headspace. And that's the thing that's so many people in the public sector are really not having, right? Someone who's got to make a school timetable, who's got to do a rotor in the NHS, trying to manage that with different work patterns is some, it feels like an extra piece of stress. In the, you know, in the business, you know, you know, in the private sector, particularly when it comes to SMEs, you know, I think the business support is a kind of a really important part of that around like bringing HR um, kind of expertise to SMEs. In the public sector, what could that support look like? Where could it come from to kind of really actually make that happen in reality? And the lady but on this end of the, the jump around her neck. <laughs> Good morning. Um, I'm a local district councillor in Cambridgeshire, and I'm sure that most of the panel will know that, that South Cam's district council have actually introduced a four day uh, a week working. Um, I understand the results are excellent. Uh, in terms of uh, staff productivity and staff recruitment. And as someone who is working in local government, trying to retain staff after years and years of, of underinvestment is incredibly difficult. But this, this current government is actually suggesting that that's not the way forward. And actually, there's, there's discussions about forcing people to do five days a week. And I shall take the gentleman just ahead of you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Matt Fothergill, civil servant and also FDA union. Uh, I could probably write an entire list on, on this, this subject matter. Uh, but I was just wondering, sort of, what are your thoughts around things like peer progression? Because uh, it's currently an issue in the civil service, and the lady touched upon it just there. But there's, there's also a debate around um, the drive for productivity, which is going to be important, particularly in the public sector. And I'd just like your thoughts on that. Great. Thank you very much. Um, Kate, do you want to start with any of those? Uh, sure. I think, uh, so, so obviously we have the advantage of working with the Centre for Aging Better. And if you if you need a guide for how to recruit over 50s, then we have one, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and it's really practical. It's, you know, and, and there's things that every employer can be doing there. Um, I, I said it when I was speaking earlier, the recruitment and the retention, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, the motivations for why people are working in a different way, how, how they are working. And we've got to be, and we've got to be talking to, I, I will just go for the perspective of you've got to be talking to those workers and understand and everybody will be individualistic um i fully i think there's something about um it's the productivity agenda isn't it when it comes to the four-day working week mm. is we probably need to really think about and this is way beyond me really think about how we're measuring productivity and what, rather than thinking about the outputs, thinking about the outcomes from productivity. And unless we get those measures right, I don't know that we're going to get the discussion on four day working week or types of working to really move on. Because one of the things that we hear on a macro level is that the UK is behind every other OECD country pretty much on, uh, on productivity. And I think that mindset needs to be shifted. So, so I, I would go right all the way back to how we're measuring um, in order to, to make that, that case. Um, and I think this is where, in terms of pay progression and um, that, that progression piece, we, we've got a lot to learn. That the public-private partnerships, they, they, they can learn a lot. So in a number of employers, they will set out the, um, very clearly um, what is the progression and what are those pay bounds. And actually, in some ways, the civil servants service does that very well in terms of you know the grades, you know where you can go. What I don't understand about the civil service is why you can't leapfrog why it's so narrowly defined, because that doesn't necessarily happen in the private sector. It's about skill sets. And if you can outline the skill sets and what's required and have a matrix that explains the role, 
then it's up to individuals to be able to demonstrate their skills in order to be able to, to really push that forward. But transparency in pay, I think, is all important there. Yeah, I think I'm interested in, in the whole four-day week thing because I think it, it benefits, some people might benefit if they're at a desk. But if you're a care worker, and we saw this with one of the reasons that Birmingham's had such troubles, is that if you're basically, if you're a referees worker, you could do the task and finish. You could finish your job, go home on the same pay. But if you're a care worker and your client needed you, you, you had to be there. So I think we've got to be very careful in all of this, that we're not just having a discussion. You know, I've talked about the highest paid civil servants having, you know, they might not think it's a good deal that they've got the five year thing, but they get a good payoff if they're kicked out and the lowest paid don't get that. So I think there's a real, real, really important that a Labour government comes in really clear eyed on those potential inequalities. But I do think it's interesting on the productivity thing. It's about the outcomes that you get for people. And so sometimes you do need to do, to do that very much face to face and you will be working more hours to do that because it's that contact with people. Sometimes it won't be. So there's got to be a, const, a real discussion about that and whether we reappraise how we pay and reward people on those bases. It's not just about how, because if you've got to spend five days doing the outcomes because that's the nature of the work and some people can do it in four, that's not really fair on the people who have to do it five. So we've got to think about the equality issues on that, I think. Um, I think on the peer progression, I mean, we, one of the things that we've really been focusing on the committee since ever I've, I've been on it is a frustration. I remember when I was a civil servant, one civil servant said to me, well, I've completed this project un, ahead of time under budget. That's fantastic. This is the second time you've done this now. So I hope you're you know, sharing your experiences with other people. It's great. He said, well, I've got to move on now. To a, I've got to take a different route and not do this sort of work because that's what I've got to do for my career progression. We thought it was such a bonkers. In fact, I've met him, I've met him since and he left the civil service because he was so frustrated, uh, partly by that approach. Um, and has gone on to do very well in, the, in a different sector, which is very sad. Um, what we need to see is those skills recognised so that if you're a skilled profession in, say, procurement, that you've got a route through. But I've met only the other day a civil service. Well, I've been eight years in my job. I look up and I can see that the job the next two jobs I want to have got people who aren't going to move for a long time. So what what are we doing? We need to also just be a bit more creative across the public sector that if you're in a whiteboard department, why aren't you somewhere at the front line for a bit uh, learning? And, and not just a placement so that you've done your two years tick, I've been at the front line in a job centre, but actually really embedding with people doing that job because... We've learned in COVID that was often a distant, very big distance from Whitehall and the reality on the ground. It was quite an eye opener, I think, for bits of Whitehall departments. So I think we need to really look at that. And I would love to see, I mean, I don't, I, I, Kate's point completely about reform, and I've been really hesitant when front benches come to me and say, we've got this great idea for reforming the civil service. I was like, big project, lots of time, very distracting, you know. So it's about doing it with people. But actually, what's interesting is now increasingly, repeatedly, permanent secretaries come and sit in front of my committee director generals and they get a lot of the need to have this more specialized approach which will in enhance things um on the just on the one little point uh, emily on um uh, flexible working for older people pensions um is a big issue here um i mean my big bugbear is lowest paid people's pensions actually okay but but there is a big issue we need to have a way of lots of people in the in the health service now aren't even going buying into their pension they're too busy generation rent just trying to scrape to get the money to pay their rent so there's a whole issue around housing and pensions which I'm, I'm hoping to do some work on but I think it's a big issue so if you've retired taking your pension and you go back there's all sorts of complexities that are quite technical there that we need to get to grips with and I don't think really enough people are thinking about that. Uh, thanks um, I'm kind of struck by the four-day week point because um, the TEC argued in 2018 and still argue that we could get to a four-day week in the 21st century and our kind of core of our argument was we've got all these promises of new technology kind of then we were being promised about automation now there's a lot of promises around kind of how AI and if we're going to use the benefits of that new technology if we're going to be more productive if we're going to be richer one of the ways we've historically shared those riches is by enabling us to work fewer hours but I was just thinking I came in kind of did this argument to at the Unison conference and the audience just looked at me and were like yeah, okay, we are working six days a week and being paid for four at the moment. So thanks very much for your four day week. But we'd like to just, you know, get down to five and possibly be paid for it right now. So I think there's kind of, as Meg said, how we talk about this. But there is questions of kind of job design. And I think that goes to your question about flexible work. We know people can work in a variety of different ways and they can do that in loads and loads of different services but it is about actually thinking about that and planning it so it is 
you know, genuine job designs that works rather than just burdening workload on somebody else in the profession. And kind of two things we think are really important for that. One is we've said that you should have to advertise all jobs as flexible. And that means kind of shifting the point when you start thinking about flexible working to before the person is in post and you're saying, oh no, sorry, we can't, to when you're actually designing the job in the first place and thinking what are the different ways in which this job could be done and how might I have to recruit differently if I have to do that. And then of course, trade unions have got loads of expertise in this basically. So a situation in which employers are actually talking to their trade unions about, you know, what flexible work have we got at the moment? What issues are people reporting? What type of flexibility might work here? What's the impact of that on your colleagues? And some of that flexibility might be, let's work a four day week rather than five. In the public services, that is going to require more investment or more staff and a different job design. But, you know, the pandemic has showed us we've been able to change ways of working very, very quickly in a lot of professions. And I think we should be able to do that in the public sector too. Um, I should know the issues around pay progression better than I do in the civil service. So I'm not going to pretend I'm familiar with them. But one point is to get better pay progression, you need better pay across the board. And that is one of the things that has held it back. And I think it does have to come back to this issue. We do need more investment in our public services. Nick. Thank you. Yeah, I want to pick up on the four day a week and kind of uh, greater flexibility. And the rollout of those, as, as Emily said, it does require headspace. Uh, and indeed, I think that's probably the key to the wider productivity improvements that are possible. Actually, these aren't things that can be done top down to services. In most cases, this is going to be best led by those on the front line who understand the services well. But if you are getting one year funding settlements and have no certainty beyond that. If policy is changing every five minutes, uh, then it's very difficult to think about the long term because you're just worried about what's going to happen in the next few months. And I think the, the pay progression issue can feed into that because you know, what we've seen since 2010 is we've seen a big compression uh, of pay bands. Those at the top of bands have generally seen their pay cut more. And in the civil service, what that means is that if you want to meaningfully increase your pay, the only way to do that is to be promoted, which in many cases means moving on to a different role. And so we are encouraging people who want to get ahead rather than building up expertise in a particular area to keep flitting between different parts of government and that is not helpful. Thank you very much. Um, we've got time for another round of questions. So um, there's a lady in pink jacket, uh, there's a gentleman just ahead of her and there's a lady uh, with <laughs> the flowery top. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Hi, I'm Claire Booker. I'm a local councillor in Litchfield. I spent 20 years in the military. My husband's a paramedic as well. Um, so a lot of what you say I can relate to. Um, when I first started in the military, and I've seen in the civil service as well, there was a lot more than just the pay. There was a whole package of benefits of being a public sector worker. Um, and I've seen over 20 years an erosion of the offer. When I left the military, I fancied going into the civil service, but I had a look at how much my colleagues in the civil service who worked next to me got paid, and I was like, not a chance, <laughs> because the pay was so awful, but where's all the benefits gone? And I'd love to hear your comments about the whole package, not just money, but those benefits that used to subsidise the poor pay, where are they? And that would be really nice to be considered. And then the gentleman in front of you. Um, hi, yeah. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm from the TUC. Uh, Hostile question. <laughs> yeah, my question is largely for Kate Bell. Uh, actually, it's more, well, Nick's touched on this already, but it's the issue of pay review bodies and are they still fit for purpose? Uh, the experience of trade unions recently uh, has been mixed, to say the least. Um, I think one of those is a long-standing problem of unions going through the process, given the evidence, and not always being massively confident. That's been reflected in the recommendation. Second is where the government politicise it, so hiding behind it and talking about its independence when it's convenient, and then ignoring it when it's convenient. So um, lack of faith in the government's approach to pay review bodies. Um, but also, I think this year, but also if you look back at the 2018 three-year deal negotiated in the NHS, um, it seems that the real breakthroughs in pay have come through direct collective bargaining with the government and employers. So are the pay review bodies fit for purpose? Labour have a standing commitment to look at 
I'm not going to use the word reform, should we say improve the pay review, pay review body process? What can be done to reform them? And what can be done particularly to reinstall faith in them from the trade unions? Thank you. And then back to the lady just in the flowery top. Hi, I'm Susanna Rustin, and I'm from The Guardian and write about public services a lot, which more and more seems to come down to workforce um, issues. I just wanted to ask, there's obviously a kind of long-standing sort of feminist analysis of the uh, low status accorded to, to care, you know, paid and unpaid. And, you, and I want, I'm worried that there's now a kind of sort of broader thing going on where sort of embodied work is kind of valued lower. So anything that's kind of human facing and very demanding and basically involves looking after people. So you would never in the past have thought of prison work, for example, as care. But, but, but the, all these public sector professions that basically rely on working face to face with people and helping people, I just feel really unnerved that it, it just feels like people are just draining out of these professions. And I'm sort of worried that it's about technology and just about cultural shifts and that somehow as our attention has kind of moved more and more to screens, that these kind of, not just social skills, because obviously you can be social online, but the kind of embodied skills about sort of humans being together in a physical space and how hard and demanding that is to kind of work with other people in the same physical space. And I just don't know how the government can sort of, a Labour government can somehow re-motivate people to want to be in those uh, jobs and physical places, prisons, schools, hospitals, care homes, etc. Thank you very much. Um, Nick, do you want to start on Yeah, just on that um, final point first, I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of those relational skills are things that you develop over time. Uh, but we, a lot of public services, you, you mentioned prisons, uh, the police is another, it's also happened in the NHS, we've lost a lot of the most experienced staff. And in prisons, for example, you know, we have fewer staff than we had uh, in 2010, but we all, they're also way less experienced. So like more than half of prison staff have less than five years experience now. And that's one of the reasons why people are spending so long in their cells, because those the current guards are less good at navigating, keeping more people out of their cells for longer whilst keeping violence levels down. So absolutely keeping experienced people in their jobs is absolutely critical. Uh, on Matt's point on uh, PRB, so I think you're absolutely right. Government has politicised them, and that has been deeply unhelpful. And I can completely understand why some unions have said that they wanted to withdraw from the process uh, completely. So I think being realistic about what it is that they do, they are not completely independent, but they can dispassionately weigh the evidence. And I think that is a helpful process, but these are ultimately political decisions and it is going to come down to the minister. I think that said on the politicisation, you know, if you speak to people in government, the thing that they will say is, you know, people say PRBs are weaker than they've ever been, but actually PRBs have just made us pay workers quite a lot more than we wanted to. Uh, in many ways, you know, the Sunak government didn't want to offer uh, public sector staff as much as they actually did, but felt compelled to do so because, in fact, they tied their own hands last year by saying we have to do what PRB said, which in 22-23 meant pretty below inflation pay rises, but in 23-24 has meant actually more generous offers. So I think in many ways they are in quite a strong position at the moment, but we do need to be realistic um, about their role. And into just picking up on the point on kind of wider benefits. So Private sector staff, uh, particularly when you take into account bonuses, do get paid more than public sector staff. But when you take account of pension contributions, it evens up quite a lot, though that differential has shrunk massively in the last 10 years. But actually, we think PRB should use the current powers they have a bit more, because I think there are quite a lot of public sector staff who would be happy to forego a bit of their pension contribution for higher wages now. And I think that's the type of thing that PRBs could make recommendations on. Not an easy topic. <laughs> Sounds like a whole other event. <laughs> um, uh, Kate, I'll come to you next. I should say, I think this will be the last round of comments, so do yeah. feel free to add any final thoughts as well. Um, yeah, I just want to pick up, kind of start with Susanna's really interesting question. And I think um, there's a kind of divide that opened up in the pandemic, basically, um, between people who were working outside the home and people who were working 
inside the home and we've just been giving evidence to the COVID inquiry and we have a witness statement which just has accounts of public sector workers mostly working outside the home and kind of their sense that no one could really understand what it was like basically of going into work every day you know if you're working in the health service watching a large number of people die um, and also the kind of trauma of thinking every day am I bringing this home to my family and I think there's something kind of of that sort of divide that opened up and then a feeling that no one really got got it and you haven't been kind of rewarded for that has left some pretty deep scars and then kind of on top of that you have you know if you're a kind of young person I guess you know you're thinking am I going to go into teaching I've got to stand up every day you know or am I going to go into a profession where maybe I get to work at home and that kind of flexibility so I think those two things are having quite a profound impact and people do you know people who work in the public sector will talk about the value they get from that mm. the sense of purpose the sense of interaction if you're constantly being unrewarded for that and you feel like no one really gets it then the kind of advantages of that and the benefits you know the package as you were talking about has diminished as well there's there's that kind of divide opening up but I think understanding the kind of the scars of the pandemic I guess is quite key to understanding what's going on there um Matt's question about pay review bodies is a tricky one for the TC because our unions are in, you know, have quite different views about what should happen to the pay review bodies. And some of them, nobody thinks they're working well, basically. Some people think they should be reformed. Some people think they should be abolished. But I think what everybody thinks is we need a new set of principles for pay determination in the public sector, which give unions a real say, which have a genuinely independent view in their establishing them and possibly have a process by which disputes as we've seen this year can actually be resolved and a real process of negotiation so I think there's definitely definitely a case for reform. Uh, yeah and on the pay review bodies I mean I'm really quite I think this this about what the long-term impact point I think that Nick made earlier I really think is really important because that's what you know, pay isn't about a short-term issue. It's actually about the long-term, and and we need to build that in much more. And that's what we, you know, partly what we've seen with John Osborne. That really picks up a bit on what Susanna was raising about the. the I mean, we've looked a lot on the committee about the, the government's got this role of shaping the, the market for care in in the Department of Health and Social Care. It doesn't do it. You know, it doesn't know how to do it. it. It's it's all a bit of a nonsense. And so it's often very very low pay. You know, because of all of the. So, I mean, care workers is one, one area we, I say we looked at particularly, but we, we all know that I haven't, I haven't got time to go into all the sort of economic dynamics of why people won't pay enough for care homes. And we have all the commissions we've had on social care. A lot of that needs to be, we, we're just not really valuing that face-to-face -face care enough. And I think there is this huge tension now. Um, you know, if you're a kid coming out of school in Hackney now, I have to say when I started 18 years ago, you didn't even go to university or anything. But now they are. They've got the option of sitting at a computer and working four days a week or going into social care, being low paid. And this all, a lot of the other thing we haven't really touched on today is, is housing, a mm. real bugbear for me. We, I mean, you know, we talk actually about the priority for all workers, um, public sector and low paid private sector workers, housing. I mean, so Keir's hopefully is going to outline in his speech today some of those proposals, because without a decent home, you can't progress. You haven't got any stability, that, that quarter I mentioned. But lots of people in Hackney uh, um, and other expensive parts of the country are leaving and working elsewhere where they can. That just means that we're, we've still we've got an increasing problem with the people who have to be at the front line face to face with people who can't afford to go and live locally. We can't afford to work. You know, they can't go anywhere else. They can't do it remotely. Though I do have a constituent I met on the doorstep who works in Cornwall in a care home um, and she lives there during the weeks or 10 days or so she works. And then she comes back to Hackney for a few days off. And that's that's the reality. I mean, now that's not exactly an enticing lifestyle. But then she said to me, "Why can't I rent to buy my home?" So she wants her, she wants to own her own home. She can't do that. So we've got to look at all of these things in the package. So perhaps not a very, a very straightforward answer, but I think we've got the, the pensions, housing. These are all really really important as well. So we've got we focus very much on public sector workers and pay today. But I think the the package is pensions and housing. And housing doesn't have to be part of the package of the job. But if in the job you've got, you can't afford to live rent or buy uh, locally or don't qualify for a council property and they're not thank goodness knows there's not enough of them either um you know there is no hope whereas if you've got people the opportunity you know, if, if their money their, their package means they can buy or rent a home 
and and then then now we're we're beginning to get somewhere where we can begin to stabilize things. So for me, actually, if I, if one thing that we achieve in a four year term in government um, it, it was we really kickstart housing, actually that will make one of the biggest differences to everybody. Um, and I would like to see a real step change on that. Kate, final word to you. Sure. Um, I feel like the first point and the, the last point go together really nicely in terms of that erosion of the benefits of working in the public sector and the status of it. And so from I said that the um, uh, there have been changes in the labour market. And one of the things we've seen most fundamentally is the choices that people um, I'll call them candidates, job seekers are making in terms of where they want to work. And yes, pay is one factor in that, but it wasn't by far the overriding piece. Um, and, and the benefits were all important, but actually it was all about how you were treated and the status and whether this workforce felt like the right place for me and the culture. And that's something that recruiters are saying is just so, so different. Um, and, and, that, and that's across the piece. So although it's anecdotal, we were definitely seeing it that the pay decisions weren't necessarily informing where people wanted to go. And on a very, very personal level, I absolutely felt this. Um, my mum's now 71. Uh, she worked all through the pandemic for the police. She went to work every day. She was absolutely terrified about bringing it back. And she decided to retire. Um, she couldn't afford to retire until, uh, but just in a year ago, because she didn't feel like she got any thanks whatsoever for making that choice, for putting her family at risk and her grandchildren in particular at risk. And it was all about, it was nothing to do with anything else other than how she felt she was treated. And she, you know, a, a lifetime of public sector work and felt diminished for it, even though she'd worked through the pandemic at her age. So a really personal level for me that how we're treating our workforces needs to fundamentally change. And it all goes back. Staff benefits are key in that and the way you pay people, but actually how, what's the culture we're building? Thank you very much. It's a very good note to end on. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you to the Recruitment and Employment Confederation for partnering with us on this event. And a particular thanks to our fantastic panelists, to Kate, Meg, Kate and Nick. Thank you very much.